I hope that everybody is having a good year. We're in February already, which is crazy. And hopefully in February, you're not going, is it over yet? Because I'm ready for 2020. Uh, hopefully you're not in that state of life where you're just like, I'm done with this. When can we get to the next year? Hopefully you're having decent years. If not, I pray that God would reveal some, some things to you, that he would bless you, that he would give you courage in the midst of this year. But speaking of somebody who's having a good year, Joshua is having a great year. Joshua, the guy that we're looking at in this text in the book of Joshua, he's having a great year. It would be hard to argue in the history of the world that, that somebody had a better year than Joshua. Just think about what's been going on in his life. Now, this would have happened somewhere, the year is 1405 BC, but it's still a year. And think of the things that have happened to Joshua in this time. Every move that he's made has seemed to be met with success and extraordinary favor from God. He, he leads a whole nation out of wandering in the desert for 40 years. How would you like to be the guy that finally gets to step into the promised land? That's a great year. He literally gets to talk to God. How many of us can say that? Joshua literally talks to God and he tells them, hey, Joshua, be strong and courageous. And he doesn't tell them at one time, he says it three times. And to be strong and courageous was contingent on Joshua understanding that at the foundation, God would be with him every step of the way. That's what being strong and courageous is about, that God is with him wherever he goes. And so he leads these people out of the wandering into the land of Canaan. God literally parted a river. How many in your leadership would you have, hey, God parted a, a river on my watch. How about you? And so he has a river parted. God speaks to him literally. Joshua people, his people are just so infascinated with, or just fascinated with this guy they say to Joshua, hey, whatever you say, whatever you tell us to do, no, we're for it, okay? Whatever you want to do, I'm in. You're our guy. If they took approval rates at this time, like Joshua, they'd be like, this is the highest approval rate I've ever seen in my life. He's just that good of a dude. It's going amazing for him. Things could not be going better. Two spies enter into the Jericho. They come back and say, hey, it's ours for the taking. We just need to go to conquer it. And so one would think Joshua's feeling pretty good about himself. Uh, he's heading into the battle of Jericho that's just moments away here. And this is where we're going to pick up our text today in Joshua 5, preparing for the battle of Jericho. And so we'll go ahead and look at this together in Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What an interesting interaction here. We see that Joshua in this moment is over by the city of Jericho 
And one would rightly assume, being the leader that he is, that he's probably looking over the city as he knows he's heading into battle, and he's most likely in his head formulating his strategy on how he's going to go about defeating the city. He's considering the odds, creating a, a, a battle plan. And what we can see in this is that maybe, just maybe, that Joshua is leaning a little bit too much into his own knowledge, his own understanding, his own efforts. I mean, can you blame this guy, first of all? He's had a good year. He's had success wherever he has been. And we know that success in abundance can create self-reliance. And so Joshua's looking over the city. But something in this, something in Joshua is not sitting well with the Lord. And God sends his commander to remind him of who's in charge. To humble Joshua. And so as Joshua is overlooking the city, the commander of the Lord's army comes. He's in his presence. Joshua looks up and sees him and he says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you for us or against us? Now notice what the commander of the Lord's army says here because it's interesting. He says, no, neither. Like there's only two answers to that and he didn't answer either one of them. He said, no. It would be like you today walking in here and saying, oh, there's somebody here I've never met before. I am just out of compassion in my heart. I'm going to be salt and light here. I'm going to love them. I'm going to walk up to them and introduce myself. And so you walk up to them and say, hey, I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Uh, my name's D'Artagnan. And you're like, oh, D'Artagnan, that's a great name. I've never heard that name before. Are you here locally or are you not from around here? And they would say, neither. Like, what? You can't answer it like that. That's literally what happens in this text. This is a loaded answer that I want to unpack for us. There is something in the interaction between Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army that is meant to remind Joshua who it is that has sustained him, who it is that has been the author, the perfecter, the executor of all the miracles, all the things that have been done that have elevated Josh, Joshua above his people, that elevated him up amongst his people, and that person wasn't him. It was God. There is a stripping away of even a hint of pride in Joshua as he looks over Jericho. That pride will not be allowed amongst God's people. It will not be allowed in his presence here. It will not be allowed in this battle plan. Joshua must humble himself. And listen, so must we. So must we. The great theologian, author, Christian guy, spectacular scholar, A.W. Tozer, he writes this. I, I find this to be profound. He says, the experience of men who walked with God in olden times, that's Joshua, agree to teach that the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. Let me say that again. The experiences of men who walked with God in olden times agree to teach that the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. God will not let Joshua go unconquered. He will see it through. And after humbling Joshua, God begins to reveal his battle plan for the defeat of Jericho. And let's read that together here in Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. They're scared. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, 
all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their tr the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And so this is the plan. This is the plan. Uh, there isn't a flanking strategy involved with this whatsoever. There's not, hey, let's take the high ground. We'll put some artillery up here. Hey, you do this. There's no military tactic in this at all. Nothing of redeemable military tactic for any of us in this world to go, oh, that's how you do it. Rather, it's 40,000 men, fighting men, walking around the walls for six days. And on the seventh day, they're going to shout after the horns blow, and it's all going to fall down. That's the tactic. Now, here's what I want you to notice. In the beginning of that passage, the Lord clearly said that the city's in your hands. He says, the Lord and its kings and its mighty men are in your hand. Does God need these men to walk around the city of Jericho? No. Not one bit. He doesn't need it at all. But I think this is important for you to notice. Even though God could, by the word of his power, destroy that city, walls and all. He has chosen through his design to be in partnership with you and I. He has chosen in his design to use you and I in partnership. He's chosen you and I to be the vehicle that accomplishes his, his will, listen, for our benefit, that we might see the glory and the power and the splendor of our king. He doesn't need us but yet he still uses us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 that we are God's fellow workers, that we are God's field, God's house. God could have elected to do all things himself, through himself, by himself, but he's designed us to be partners with him in the message of reconciliation, bringing people back to know him, to spread the gospel, and ultimately to reveal the heart and the will of God to those people here on earth. And so God uses his creation, partnering with his creation here in Jericho, but notice the means in which he uses them. Like, this is a parade. It's, it's a parade. That's what it is. You might as well have the Shriners with their hats in their cars at this thing, because this is exactly what this is. For six days, an exercise walk around the walls of Jericho. How would you feel if you were there? Massive walls. What is God trying to do here? Massive walls. All you would see every day that you walked was wall after gate that was shut, after gate that was shut, after a high wall. You know that the plans that God said is that you have that city. You don't necessarily know that how it's all going to go. How are you going to feel day in, day in, out, seeing those walls? Why does God do that? And he's got a reason for everything got a reason for everything. God is stripping his people of pride. 
Because who's going to tear those gigantic walls down? It's not them. It's God. God is using these means to humble his people, to strip them of their pride. There's a greater purpose here in conquering Jericho. It's stripping his nation of pride, that they would see the splendor of God. And listen, there is a great lesson for us in Jericho. There is a great lesson for us in Joshua and his interaction with the Lord's commander. A great lesson that reminds us over and over again. God teaches this lesson over and over and over again in his word, and it's this. God requires humility of me. He requires it. Write that down. God requires humility of me. It's not an option. It's not a footnote. You can't pick and choose when you're going to practice it. It is a requirement. We see it here present with Joshua, and we see it in his people here at Jericho. He requires humility. And so let's unpack that a little bit today. Humility separates those who are self-centered from those who are God-centered. It separates those who are self-centered from those who are God-centered. Simple thought has extraordinary realities. Self-centered people misunderstand the nature of their relationship with God. Here's how self-centered people view their relationship with God. And yes, I did wear my professor coat for a reason, because I'm coming over here to the dry board. Self-centered people, who do they put in the middle of their lives? It's me. And God almost becomes like an appendage out here. But J for Jesus. So does our family, our marriage. Everything revolves around who? Around me. That's a self-centered life. And I want you to consider this. Do you know who Jesus reserved his harshest words for? Self-righteous. Do you know who Paul reserved his harshest words for? The self-righteous. And what is a self-righteous person that is not a self-centered person that makes being holy about them and not about God? God does not want self-centered people. And so here's what I would continue today. I think Joshua, in all humility... I think Joshua asked the wrong question. I will continue that he asked the wrong question. The question, are you for us or are you against us? Now, now, where's God in that? Who's at the center of that question? Joshua is. Now, do we know this as believers who trust in Jesus? Is God for us? You better believe it. When we have faith in the Lord, we trust in the Lord. God is for us. But who's at the center of this question? It's Joshua. Are you for us? Are you for me, God? And God says what? Neither. (laughs) Neither. Because it's putting the wrong person at the center of the question. It it would be like this. Think of these questions that we answer. These ask. We ask these questions. God, are you for my relationship with you or against it? God, are you for my relationship or my career decision or are you against it? Neither. God, are you for my success or against it? Neither. Of course the answer is neither. 
Because who's at the center of the question? There is only one place that God accepts, and it's the center. A God-centered person asks the better question, and that question is, are we for you? God, are we for you? God, is this relationship for you? Or is it against you? God, is my career decision for you? Or is it against you? God, is my success for you? Or is it against you? That question puts God in the center. It's a God-centered question. And this question that Joshua asked reveals more than just an answer. It reveals Joshua's pride. It reveals his pride. This is what we see in Joshua 5. And so understand for us, there is a difference between relying on our own strength, our own knowledge, our own effort, instead of relying on God's plan, God's favor, and God's voice. And Joshua teaches us a lot about humility and self-centeredness. Self-centered people view God as their resource, that he's this Swiss army knife that I can just put in my pocket and then I can pick it out anytime I want to and use God however I deem reasonable. God-centered people understand that God holds the Swiss army knife and I'm just mere, a mere tool in his hand that he can use when and where he wants to by his own discretion. He holds the knife. Self-centered people mistake being bold and courageous with being strong and capable. Uh, we've said this before in, in our text in Joshua 1. God said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. What's the foundation of that? I said it earlier. It was the fact that God would be with him wherever he was. When we remove God from the center of that equation, all we are is strong and capable. Because you don't have God in the right spot. And listen, you will have seasons in your life that you may find success, but you will never have God's favor. You will never have God's favor in that. That's self-centeredness. Humility is what separates self-centered people from self-God-centered people. And listen, so our second point is that humility is the one quality that assures God's favor. And pride is the one quality that assures God's displeasure. Pride is the one quality that assures God's displeasure. James writes this in our New Testament. In chapter 4, he says, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He's quoting Proverbs 3 here. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God teaches this lesson over and over and over again in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, who is James writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers just like you and I. And so what he's saying is that you can be a Christian, and in your pride, God will stand against you. That whatever you're trying to do, if you have pride in it in yourself, God will stand against you. And here's why. Just like Jericho, God does not need you. He doesn't need you. But he wants to use you. And he'll only use us if we're humble before him. If we're humble before him. God loves humility. Loves it. 
And he hates pride. Pride takes everything that is good in your life and it makes it bad. Everything. Humility takes everything that is bad in your life and by the grace of God makes it good. Think about this. Pride can take holiness and turn it into self-righteousness. It can take opportunity and turn it into entitlement. It can take success and turn it into self-reliance. Pride can take knowledge and turn it into a critical spirit. Pride takes everything about us and everything around us, and it makes it bad. And God hates it, hates it, hates it. God hates it. Only because he cares so much about you that he doesn't want to see you walk into it. Now listen to this. Humility can take sin and turn it into confession, into meekness, into poverty in spirit. It can take failure and turn it into dependency on God. Humility can take success and turn it into God's glory. It can take our limitations and turn them into prayer requests to our king. Humility takes everything about us and around us, and by God's grace, it makes it better. Makes it better. And if we truly understood the difference between humility and pride, we would run away from pride with reckless abandon because all it does is destroy and kill us. We would never want to come back to it. And so let's just get this straight about humility. Humility is not weakness. It's not quietness. It's not pliability. It's not a lack of confidence. It's not a lack of boldness. It's not a lack of force. We often equate humility into this meek person that stands in the corner and says, I just don't want to make any waves. I don't want any confrontation here. That's not humility. That's passivity. Humility is simply confidence that's put in its proper place. It's confidence that's put in its proper place. And the only place that that confidence belongs is in God and not in ourselves. It comes from a correct understanding of who you are and where you stand in front of others and before God. You are not the commander of your life. Joshua is not the commander. And if you're not the commander, it means you're just like Joshua. You and I were servants. And if we have a commander, it means this. You are not self-directed. You are not self-made. You are not self-sustained. And you are not self-determined. That is our God. Humility is seeing ourselves as a created things in the hands of a powerful, loving, merciful God. And in humility, we let God assume the sovereign position of our lives, the centermost position of our inner lives that he already possesses in the real world. We must empty ourselves of pride. We must empty ourselves of pride because humility in Christ is the only path to greatness with God. We must become low by him to be elevated. I want you to consider this today. I want you to think about all of our people in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and I just want you to see something here. I want you to consider, let's think about Jesus here, okay? Jesus is born. What happens in Jesus' life? 
We don't know much for the first 30 years, and then he burst on the scene in ministry, and all sorts of revival break out, breaks out. The land of Judea, all the disease is eradicated from the land in his time there. Flocks, mobs of people are coming to see him. He's gaining popularity. What's going on in Jesus' life? He's ascending. But what do we know that happens to Jesus for our sake? He descends. He dies into Hades. Why? So he can be lifted up, elevated to the highest spot, the throne of our lives, the throne of the world. Think about Moses. Think about this pattern. Think about Moses. Moses was born in Egypt, part of the family of the Pharaoh. All the privileges of the Pharaoh. He's trained as an Egyptian. Life is good for Moses. When he's 40, he realizes that I'm a Jew. All these people here are my people, and they're being mistreated. I've got to do something about this, he says. And so what does Moses do? Kills an Egyptian. How does that go? Not good. Cast out into the wilderness. How long is Moses there for? 40 years. What happens at the end of that 40 years when Moses is 80? God comes in a burning bush. What does God say to Moses? I want you to be my leader. You know what Moses says? No, I can't. What did Moses learn in the wilderness? Humility. Joseph. Joseph has a dream. Everybody's going to bow down to me. My brothers, I'm going to be great. He's daddy's favorite. Daddy buys him a coat of many colors. He's got a rich life. What happens? Brother's not happy about that. What do they do? Throw him in a pit, goes to Potiphar's house, and into prison. What happens in prison? Meets a cupbearer, interprets a dream. Cupbearer goes back to the Pharaoh and says, hey, this guy interprets dream. Pharaoh goes to, to Joseph and says, hey, I have this dream. Can you interpret it? What does Joseph say? Not me. I can't. God can, though. What did Joseph learn in prison? Humility. Paul, Saul, converted, right? Jews are just, who's this dude? He's claiming Jesus the Messiah. He was one of us. They're baffled by his teaching. They want to kill him. They hate him that much. People are just fascinated with his teaching. Everywhere he goes, he goes and meets the disciples. He, he goes and teaches in Jerusalem. He teaches and uprising happens. The whole place wants to kill him. So what do the disciples do? They send him to Tarsus. Do you know how long Paul's in Tarsus? Almost 10 years. And do you know what happened in those 10 years that Paul was gone? It says that peace was restored in the land. The church grew. People came to know the Lord. If you would look any of the teachings of Paul before he comes back in Antioch, there is zero mention of the Holy Spirit. What happens to Paul in Tarsus? He's humbled. And then he comes back in Antioch and he becomes one of the founders of our faith that we know. Humility. We must empty ourselves. And listen, God will force it. You have to make the choices, but you have to change your desires. God will break you to keep you. We've said that before. We must lower ourselves to be exalted by God. We must let our pride go. And this is my last point. Humility is the one quality that if we possess it, 
God will overlook your flaws and give you grace. However, if you lack it, God will look, overlook all your good deeds and turn himself against you. I hope this is sinking in. In this journey with Joshua, in this tumultuous time that we see with, with Joshua, what we learn is that God always prioritizes his standings in the hearts of his people over taking any territory, giving any blessings, or anything materially. He will go to great lengths to conquer his people. A wise man once said to me that God will fight the fight of us, but he needs a partner. And we see that in the book of Joshua. As these men walk around the walls of Jericho, we see them in their humility. God, God loves humility. He wants to be at the center. It's not because he wants to control you. Why would God just, I want to control you? That, but rather because he knows what's best for you. There is a design for you to flourish. And I use this word flourishing over and over again. You were designed to flourish. And I'm not talking about prosperity or material, but you were designed to flourish in design by God, by following his word, by loving him with all of our hearts and all of our minds and with all of our strength and loving others as ourselves. There's a design for an internal flourishing that sometimes happens in a worldly flourishing. But it will only come when we humble ourselves before God. And God will force that point. Joshua teaches us that only those who bow down in humility will ever stand on the holy ground of God's favor. God could do it all, but he chooses you and I to partner with. And he only wants to use us when we humble ourselves. And so here's some, a take-home question for you today. Where am I not considering God in my plan? Where am I not considering God in my plan here today? God, is my plan for you or it is against you? God, is this for you or is, is it against you? And I'll say this, you can't fake humility. You've got to make choices, but you have to pray through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that he would change your desires. You must first see your inadequacy and see the beauty of Christ. Put him at the center and pray that God would change your desires. And the sooner that we learn that lesson, the more favor there is to be found in God. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today, and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for Joshua. Uh, we thank you for your heart for us. He chose to use us to be with us, Lord. And so, God, we, just as broken people, uh, we just ask that you would just move us. God, help us to walk away from our pride. Lord, teach us humility. Help us desire humility. Help us to put you at the center of all that we do, all that we are, because you're worthy of it, plain and simple. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in the awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.